Welcome to Writers on the Beat, where crime writers meet crime fighters. I'm your host, Gavin Reese, and I'm proud to be part of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Every episode of this podcast will bring in a variety of experts to help all writers incorporate more authentic cops, crime, and criminals in their stories. Sitting across the interrogation room from me today is international bestseller James Rollins. Readers across the world have purchased millions of his works in 40 languages all over the globe. If there's a bookstore at the Antarctic Research Facility, you can rest assured a few of his copies are on sale there. His novels include several standalones, 14 installments of the popular Sigma Force series, and its offshoot, the Tucker Wayne series, the Order of the Sanguinesse series, and the Jake Ransom Middle Grade series, in addition to the blockbuster movie novelization of Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. James's fiction has been endorsed by the likes of Lee Childs, Steve Barry, and two of my guests last week, Douglas Preston and Lincoln Child. The Crucible, the latest in his Sigma Force series, debuted on January 22nd, has been incredibly well-received. Welcome to Writers on the Beat, James. I appreciate you spending some time with me today. Well, thanks for having me on your program, Gavin. Appreciate it. Well, starting with the hot topic of the day, what, what do you want readers to know about your new release, Crucible? Well, this book sort of tackles uh, a coming crisis that the physicist Stephen Hawking once described as the worst event in the history of civilization that Elon Musk believes will lead to World War III. And even the Russian president, Vladimir Putin, once stated that whoever controls this event will control the world. And this event is the creation of the first true human-like artificial intelligence. So this book is sort of a cautionary tale. You know, I'm dealing with where we are currently in AI research. You know, nowhere in my novel does Arnold Schwarzenegger go back in time to save uh, Sarah Connors. My goal with this book is to shine a light what's really going on in research today in this field, mm-hmm. and both... Uh, you know, how wonderful that might be and how uh, horrible things might turn out if, they, if the, that coin flip ends up landing in a different side of that coin. Yeah, I'm reading Crucible now and I'm genuinely impressed with the, the seamless blend of fact, fiction, and, and little known history. It's a really well done fiction that I, I'm kind of afraid could become a narrative nonfiction in the next few years. One of the reasons I, I you know, I, I, t- I think they had 24 actually maybe 25 AI researchers that were willing to talk to me either by phone or by email uh, or by interview uh, that I pre- to prepare this novel. And I think I, you know, I could have theoretically written a nonfiction treatise about where we are currently with the state of AI and where what's going on in these labs right now. Because one of the questions I always love to ask these AI researchers, you know, don't tell me what you wrote in that last book or that last mm-hmm. research article. You know, look over your shoulder and tell me what's on your workbench today. You know, what's what's what are you working on now? Uh, I want to try to get you know because there's always a lag time between when I finish a book and when it gets published, mm-hmm. and so I want to be as topical as I can. So when the book comes out, it's not already you know out out of date. And so you know, my goal with this this, this novel is try to be as cutting edge as I can. At the end of all my books, I have a what's true, what's not section where I do pull aside the curtain and show you exactly how much of this book is fiction, how much of it is fact. But me as a novelist, you know, one of my joys is writing is, is, is you know, besides uh, being able to shine a light on these, these, what's going on in the AI research today, I have the freedom then to explore, you know, what exactly does that mean? How is that going to challenge us? What does it mean if, if we create a first true human AI computer you know what are, what's our responsibilities for that device you know do we have if it really is self-aware and conscious do we have the ability to turn it off is, mm-hmm. is that a form of murder uh you know what does it mean uh, it, if this does become a super intelligence what what that might mean for us 
Sure, I would expect you know how can we build in some sort of uh, some sort of boundaries, protocols, morals, ethics that that machine can't then redefine on its own. It's a, it's a, a kind of a quagmire. The um, now as a reader with this book, um, you had me hooked even before page one. In fact, even before the acknowledgments, um, you featured two quotes that so simultaneously impressed and terrified me that I wanted to share them with the audience. Um, first one. What is going to be created will effectively be a god. It's not a god in the sense that it makes lightning or causes hurricanes. But if there is something a billion times smarter than the smartest human, what else are you going to call it? And this time you will be able to talk to God, literally, and know that it's listening. The second quote, with artificial intelligence, we are summoning the demon. The first of those is from 2017 by Anthony Lewandowski, a former Google exec who founded Way of the Future, a new church based on the religion of artificial intelligence. The second of those quotes is by Elon Musk at an MIT symposium in 2014. How were you inspired to write about this topic and how did you uh, come across these statements? What was your reaction when you found all this? Well, I've been collecting information about AI for a while. You know, I always get that question at, at a book signing, you know, where do you get your ideas from? And you know, I'm always got my antenna up for that next bit of uh, those seeds that might become aspects of a story, whether it's uh, historical details or, or scientific details. And one corner of the box was rapidly accumulating all this information about AI, and it was mm -hmm. that pile was was uh, growing uh, exponentially of late. Uh, and so I was curious, you know, at this point, you know, where are we at this this stage of the game? And began talking to some, you know, I, I my Sigma Force heroes of my story. They're they're former. Special Forces soldiers that work for DARPA, the Defense Department's Research and Development Agency. So I've got a lot of contacts with DARPA that are willing to talk to me and share information. So I just sort of posited the question to them, you know, you know, how close are we to this moment in time where we're going to cross that threshold, this moment of what uh, Ray Kurzweil calls moment of singularity, the moment where mm -hmm. computers surpass us in, in intelligence and self-awareness. And the answers I began to accrue from all the different AI researchers I was talking to was, was disconcerting. I posited all of them, you know, okay, what's, when are we reaching this point of singularity? You know, just, I'm not gonna hold you to it. I'm not going to post your names. Just, you know, from your own gut instinct of working sure. at this level, when do you think this is gonna happen? And so from the straw poll, uh, from the 22 to, that I were willing to answer this question, uh, the, the general consensus was anywhere between five years and 15 years from today which is scary in and of itself because that's within our lifetime we might be crossing this threshold and dealing with basically the creation of a new intelligence on this planet that's never been seen before. We'll be sharing this planet with an intelligence that, that may be superior to us. But two of the 22 had a more surprising answer. They said, we actually think we've already crossed that threshold. You know, we've got our ear to the third rail of AI research. We know, you know, what other labs are working on and just the way that third rail is rumbling indicates to us that somebody's already testing a self-aware computer and they said well can you wow. prove that to me and they they offered me some some proof some of them i did quite honestly i didn't understand but i had to take them mm -hmm. up to the word if it was valid some i did understand and i actually put in this book i had to change some names so i didn't get accused of slander but it, it's in the book too so 
once I learned that information that were, if, if, if these two were correct, or even if they're not correct, the other ones are saying it's within our lifetime. I thought, well, if I'm going to write this book, I better, better do it now. Well, <laughs> yes. you know, this book on balancing, you know, where can, where are we headed? How fast are we heading towards this? And my next question, of course, for these 22 researchers was, okay, if this is when, if this is going to happen in our lifetime or if it's not already happened, what can we do to try to make sure that this creation is some, some entity that's going to be, uh, uh, sympathetic to these other entity, these, these walking apes that are sharing the planet with it. And how can we make sure it doesn't become that demon that Elon Musk believes uh, might be uh, created when we create this first uh, sort of cold artificial intelligence. And so they began to tell me, well, this is what needs to be done to try to lean towards that positive side of, of that, of that spectrum. And in this book, uh, we see the evolution of an immature AI named Eve and her creator. And over the course of the novel, we see this evolution of this character uh, where Mara, the, the, uh, the uh, AI researcher, is trying to sculpt and mold a, this Eve creation into something good. Um, and the techniques I use in this book are not things I just pulled out of my, my rear end. It's not something I'm just making up. These, are, these were things that were told to me by these AI researchers. You know, the, the endocrine mirror program you see in this book, uh, the, the virtual landscape in which Eve is, is, uh, is raised. Uh, because ultimately, the question is, is becomes a question of, of nature or nurture when it comes to sort of uh, training in AI or evolving in AI. You know, there's only so much you can do from, you know, the nature nurtures, you know, how much of who we are is our genetics and how much of who we are is the way we were raised. And the same is going to be true for AI is that how much uh, in the code can we build that's going to lead to a creation that, that's, uh, that's beneficial to us. And what can we do after we create this? What, how can we train this? This creation. If we abuse it, will it become a sociopath? If we, we raise it properly, will it become a, uh, a responsible adult, so to speak? Uh, and so the techniques I use in this book are not things I made up. They are things that uh, I learned from talking to these AI researchers. So how, how many sleepless nights did you spend thinking about this while you were writing this book? It, it, you know, it was, you know, I think a lot of writers write to try to deal with, uh, and I think maybe why a lot of readers read is, you know, the world's a very chaotic, uh, unpredictable, unfair, immoral world, and we're trying to make sense of it. And when we write, you know, for most books, you know, the, uh, the, the, the criminal is caught at the end and punished. <clears throat> so my book, my book, I mean, my, it was almost like to me going through a little bit of uh, a way to calm me down as well. Sure. I'm going to write a book where, you know, we can see a path to a, a better end. Uh, so that was one of the reasons I wanted to write this book is both to shine a light on what might happen if we don't pay attention to this. Because from talking to these AI researchers, you know, everybody's going after this golden ring of being the first to cross that threshold because whoever does cross that threshold first, as Elon Musk, or Vladimir Putin had once said, mm -hmm. it, all controls this techno technology will control the world. Yes. So every corporation, every government is after this and going headlong uh, towards this goal with very little regard oftentimes to safety and safeguards. Mm -hmm. Only a small percentage of, of that group that is actually trying to create what's known as a friendly AI, an AI that, that is going to be sympathetic, that's going to be potentially maybe an avatar for that malignant AI that might arise on the scene. So by writing this book, you know, I, I got to sort of work through some of that myself. 
try to find that happy ending in this, what might be a very dire situation. Yeah, if absolute power corrupts, absolutely. And this offers the potential to control the world, there probably is no greater power in the history of civilization. That's, that's incredibly dangerous. I, I, I also wonder immediately if these researchers had anything to say about the, the coexistence or, or the use of uh, the AI development and you know, how the, that'll work with the internet of things. Um, and, and I would imagine that that's gonna be something that'll be very easily manipulated by such a being. Oh, definitely. That's one of the, uh, I don't know if we could call it themes of my story is, you know, exactly how, you know, tech oftentimes looks like it might be beneficial to us, but sometimes it's used for very uh, malicious means. And for example, we start the book, we start the book with, uh, with uh, the great witch purge across mm-hmm. Europe. And, you know, back prior to the mid 1400s, you know, witches were pretty much uh, not being persecuted. They were, they were accepted. They were mm-hmm. oftentimes just women that were using pagan rituals of herbology and, and, and study the natural world to, to produce these great results. But after the, the mid-1400s, all of a sudden this great purging of witches occurred. And the reason that occurred was the, was the uh, publication of a single book called the Malleus Maleficarum, which is Latin for the Hammer of Witches. It was basically a witch hunter's Bible. It was written by a Catholic priest, basically showing you how to identify a witch, how to question a witch, how to torture a witch, and how to uh, put a witch to death. Wow. That, that book probably would have been lost to obscurity, except for the unfortunate fact that it was published the same time that Gutenberg invented printing press. So after the Bible, it was one of the first books that was mass produced. So this Witch Hunter's Bible was mass produced, distributed across Europe. And it's because of that mass production, using this technology of the printing press, that uh, spread this, uh, this book enough to, to become that, the spark that lit that great conflagration that burned mm-hmm. witches across Europe and eventually across the pond to Salem. And you know, I'm sure back in, in the past, everybody, when the, the printing press was developed, they were saying, oh, it's going to be a great boon for humanity. You know, knowledge will be readily available, mass produced. The world will be a smaller place. You know, what did we do with it when, you know, we created it? First thing that happened was, you know, burn all witches. Yes. <laughs> you know, it's not, not too unlike, you know, the, the advent of social media that, you know, it offers the, the positive benefit of being able to spread knowledge and information almost immediately or very quickly but also ignorance and malice at the same rate, maybe even faster. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure when the internet was first created, everybody was saying it's going to be a great boon for humanity. It will spread information easier. easier. Uh, the world will be a smaller place. You know, what are we doing with it? You know, with burn all witches still. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah um, on all, si- all sides of the fence, all sides of the pond, yeah. So when I'm looking at, you know, this creation of an AI and, you know, we had the military pursuing AI, what are they going to do with it? We have China using AI to, to, to become an even more intense surveillance state, and they're using social media now to uh, assign point systems to their, to their citizens. Uh, you know, we have the, the people that are trying to use AI for, for great benefit. Uh, but, you know, I, I have a fear that eventually what's going to be it's going to be burn all witches again uh, with this new tech. It, the... Um 
Brad uh, Taylor and I talked about this a few weeks ago and ignoring the respective genres expected risks of uh, life and death versus salvation and damnation. I see uh, a lot of commonality between the thriller and, and police procedure genres, you know, good guys chasing bad guys who commit heinous crimes. Uh, your Sigma Force characters follow clues, red herrings, and investigative leads and have to have some sort of evidence of crimes before resolving their problem. How do you go about deciding on the crimes, criminals, and conspiracies that you put before your heroes? Um, is there um, a, a process or is it all kind of spontaneous inspiration over the years? It's a bit of both. Um, when I, whenever I'm constructing a story, I'm always, you know, looking for, you know, that historical mystery, that, that, that question mark in history that can maybe solve from the pages of a novel. Then I'm looking for that science that makes me go, what if, where's that headed, how that's going to challenge us. Then look what, you know, where can that, where can his, that history and this science, you know, mesh together. And then I have to figure out, you know, I've got my set of heroes already in place and they evolve over the course of the series, but they're, they're fundamentally the same group. And, um, then I got to figure out who's the best villain to tell that part of the story. And so then I create the villain and then I try to figure out, well, you know, what's, what's the villain's goal? How can we stop them? So when I start a story, I know the beginning, I know the end, I know a few, uh, basically three or four tent poles that are going to hold up the story, but I don't know in great detail uh, how A goes to B goes to C. To me, one of the joys of writing is the discovery between those tent poles. Sure. So I don't outline in great detail. I, I'd rather discover the characters as, uh, as I'm going through the novel. So a little bit of pantsing and plotting. Um, in terms of uh, stopping villains, I, I also see a lot of similarity between the, those two subgenres about readers' desire for fictional rough justice. Um, uh, and oftentimes rough justice that few would tolerate or condone in real life. Sure. How, do, how do you as a writer balance satisfying the reader's sort of primal demands in this way, um, but making sure they still like the protagonist and emotionally support their actions and deeds? Well, ultimately, you know, your, your hero has their motivations, your villain has their motivations. And with my heroes, you know, they're, they're a covert group, uh, but they still have to operate within the boundaries of the law. And they, they try as best they can to stay within those boundaries. Uh, but ultimately, you know, the villain is the one that's going to drive the villain basically decides his own end. Uh, it's, it's the villain oftentimes, and I don't even oftentimes know how the villain's going to bite it at the end. If the, if the villain bites it, you know, sure. I've, I've discovered at the end that some villains have survived to, to play the Sigma force group later on, uh, it was not plotted that way in advance. It just ended up being that way. Um, so oftentimes it's the villain that decides their own fate. Um, and so oftentimes that does mean a brutal end. Other times it does mean, uh, them getting their comeuppance and being incarcerated. And other times it means them escaping. Like most authors, you didn't start out your professional career, uh, as a writer, uh, your fans undoubtedly know you had a veterinary practice before you wrote full-time. What inspired you to make that transition? Well, you know, I've always loves telling stories growing up. I, I, had, I grew up with three brothers and three sisters, um, so seven kids. We were raised Polish, wow. Roman Catholic. But to keep the Polish flag in your window, you had to have at least six kids. <laughs> Mom had a spare. So to me with that, you know, I love sort of terrorizing my younger brothers and sisters with, you know, telling them outlandish stories. You know, the, the scarier, the better. If tears sure. were involved, even better. <laughs> 
bonus points. That, you know, always that part of my personality. And I read a lot growing up and that's like throwing gasoline on that side of my brain. But the other side of my brain, you know, loved animals, loved medicine, loved science. Uh, you know, so, you know, from third grade, I knew I wanted to be a veterinarian. So I career tracked towards that. Wow. It didn't seem like, you know, it didn't seem a viable path to become an author. You, know, you can do this, this, and this, you can become a veterinarian. You can do this, this, and this, and fail horribly as an author. So I decided to make the more fundamental path to, to get my, my day job of a veterinarian. And I love the job. I still practice. I can still neuter a cat in under 30 seconds. I still do volunteer wow. work with my, with my degree. I'll never give it up. But there's still that one side of me that loved to spin tales. And, you know, eventually that voice got louder and louder, and I couldn't stop listening to it. And eventually I thought the only way I'm going to silence it is to write. And so I wrote a bunch of uh, short fiction initially because that's all I thought I could fit in my life. Didn't get a single story published, not a single one. That was over four years. I think I produced about 48 short stories. Nothing got published. And I tried to get it published. And based on that resounding success, I decided, well, I'll write a novel. (laughs) About 11 months later, I had my novel done and it ended up... uh, end up selling and then another book sold another book sell and my clients became suspicious something was going on the mm-hmm. most of the, the poster in the lobby you know get your cat spayed get a free book <laughs> so you know questions are, are began to arise across that exam sure. dr jimmy had the successful veterinary hospital what's this writing business you're doing and you know, i thought well i'll try to answer that if i can uh you know well for 15 years Veterinary medicine was my paycheck. Writing was just a hobby. Really wasn't making much off of my writing. But I thought, you know, down the line, wouldn't it be cool to flip that around and have writing be my paycheck and veterinary medicine be my hobby? And that's pretty much where I'm at today. Is, you know, I still work with a group that traps feral cats, wild cats, that bring them to the shelter. I spend one Sunday a month, about eight hours, spaying and neutering them. So now all I do with my veterinary degree is just remove genitalia. <laughs> Congratulations. It is, it is a hobby. So apparently I've achieved that goal. Uh, so that's roughly how it happened. Now, do you remember the, the first time that you realized you could write and that you might have a chance of making it as an author? Was there kind of a, an aha moment? There was, and it came from uh, a, a rejection from one of those short stories. It was rejection from Marion Zimmer Bradley. Uh, she was an international best-selling fantasy author. She wrote uh, The Mists of Avalon that became a television series. Um, and she had was an editor for a fantasy magazine. I had submitted a fantasy story to her magazine and she was kind enough to get, send me back a handwritten note saying, Hey Jim, you know, I, I think you, you can write. You definitely from the story, you were a good writer, but I don't think you're a short story writer. I think from the way you've structured your short story, I think you're a novelist. I think the way your hmm. brain is wired, you're a long format writer. And so I got to thinking about that. I thought, you know what, you know, I always sort of nowadays tell writers that I teach, you know, you, you need to write from a point of passion. Don't chase the market, write what you like to read, mm-hmm. read deeply in that genre. So I got to think of that. Well, you know what? I don't really like to read short fiction. I, I like long, I like novels and I like series and the longer the novel, the better. And so I, you know, I took her at a word uh, that maybe she's right. And that was the impetus to go from writing short fiction to writing that first novel. And that first novel did sell. So apparently she was onto something there. Now, on a similar note, I guess, um, I recently heard Stephen Coyne talk in the StoryGrid podcast about the power of genre and and writing to reader expectations. Um, Part of his explanation revolved around his theory that many authors have a a single book that inspired them to write or that they work to emulate or surpass either consciously or not. Do you have such a bellwether work that you specifically try to to aspire to or try to uh, emulate when you put pen to paper? 
Well, definitely one of my biggest influences, and it's not, it's a poorly kept secret is, is Michael Crichton, you know, mm-hmm. again, took, uh, sure. took, uh, took science topics and tried to do these mainstream thrillers around them. They're sort of blurring the line between science fiction and mainstream thriller. And so when I was writing that first novel, uh, again, had no experience. I've had no formal training in writing. I didn't, didn't quite try to structure a novel. Um, so when I was writing my first, that first novel after finishing, getting a little letter from Marion Zimmer Bradley, um, I had a copy of Jurassic Park by Michael Crichton. Mm-hmm. I was sitting on the shelf right above my, my computer, and I used that as my template. I thought, well, I'm not sure how to actually pace out a novel. You know, when, do, when, does, when does the first person get killed in Jurassic Park? Well, that's when I'm going to kill off one of my characters. <laughs> Perfect. You know, when, when does the villain step onto stage? Well, that's when my villain is going to step onto stage. When do we see the first dinosaur? Well, that's when you're going to see the first creature in my book. Uh, so I use it basically as a template on how to pace a novel. And you know, to this day, I still think Michael Crichton is, though he's very popular, I think he's underrated for what he's able to achieve in regards to storytelling and plotting. Yes. Yeah, you know, his works are, are really incredible and, you know, especially at the time, pretty groundbreaking um, on, on a lot of his stuff from a, a science and science fiction perspective. And um, it's interesting that you you emulated him in that way and that uh, one, of, one of my author friends, John Patton, um, he really, really wanted to, uh, wanted to write noir. And so he sat down and wrote Raymond Chandler's, one of Raymond Chandler's books, word for word, just typed out the whole thing. And that's kind of how he taught himself to write. Um, for an aspiring author who wanted to try to emulate Crucible as their guiding light or any of your other works, how would you recommend they go about creating and crafting a book of that caliber and appeal? Gosh, that's a tough question to answer. Because um, even today, I am a little bit hard to pigeonhole. Um, <laughs> yes, you're, you, you bring in an awful lot of uh, stuff from all over the plate. And that's because, you know, when I was growing up, I, I read a bunch of different genres. I wasn't just, a, you know, I read science fiction, I read fantasy, I read thrillers, I read mysteries, I read action adventures, I read Clive, Cux, Clive Cussler and, and Tom Clancy and uh, Nevada Barr, still one of my favorite mystery writers, and, and so on and on and on. And so when I tell people, write what you love to read, it was challenging, you know, why I ended up reading, submitting a fantasy story to Marion Simmer Bradley's magazine was that I was jumping a bunch of different genres when I write my short fiction, because I didn't know where my voice was. You know, am I better writing fantasy? Am I better writing science fiction? Am I better writing a thriller? Am I tried mystery writing? Um, and so today, my books are a little bit of all of that. You'll see, you'll see, you know, there's a mystery involved in the story. There is a thriller part. There's an action adventure part. There's the science fiction part to the story. There's little fantasy elements to the story. And, you know, Harper Collins, I've been with my same publisher since the beginning of my career. The first, you know, my editor who fished me out of the slush pile and published Subterranean, my first novel, was the same editor who edited Crucible, which is a rarity. So I've had the same editor going on for 22 years. And after HarperCollins had published about 10 of my novels, they invited me up to the, the big ivory tower of HarperCollins publishing in New York. And this is my first time I actually met my editor face-to-face. It's the first time I met the <laughs> yeah. team. And so they invited me up there. They sat me in you know, the top you know, big office meeting room, long table. Everybody's seated in there. It's the, you know, it's the, it's the sales department, the marketing department. It's, uh, it's the international sales department and at the end of the table uh, seat across from me is the head of HarperCollins 
you know, he stands up and says, Jim, you know, we published 10 of your books. But to be honest with you, we don't know what you write. <laughs> Help us. We're hoping you could explain. Yeah. So I still have a bit of a difficulty <laughs> on describing exactly, you know, we have to put it somewhere in a bookshop. So, yes. you know, when I wrote Subterranean, I thought I was writing a science fiction novel because I'm not ruining any surprises particularly, but at the end of, throughout the novel, you're going to find out there's telepathic marsupial creatures that are living underneath Antarctica. And so when I sold my first novel, they were saying like, well, Jim, we're going to, you know, publish this as a thriller. And I said, well, thriller, I thought it was science fiction. It's no, no, it's, it's you know, your, your story set in, in present time, therefore it's a thriller. So well, what about those telepathic marsupial creatures that are living underneath Antarctica? No, no, it's set in present time. So it's a thriller. <laughs> Still a thriller. I have to put it somewhere. And yeah. uh, so, gosh, you know, I don't know if anybody that probably, my ultimate goal when I write a story is to entertain. You know, I, I'm very proud of my ability to, to, you know, shine some light on some esoteric aspects of science and history. But ultimately, I, you know, I'm more proud that I can build a pretty, pretty cool roller coaster. So yeah. if, if you're, you know, want to look for a story that, you know, how to do, you know, plotting, how to, how to construct by nuts and bolts uh, that roller coaster that's going to have good twists and turns and, and unexpected drops, you know, maybe my novel would, would suffice for that. Now, um, in kind of being a little bit all over the place, you're bringing in a whole lot of different typical genres. You might have caught a, a conversation on Twitter this week about one of your fans wishing for you to write a riveting financial thriller. <laughs> if money is the root of all evil. Could there be such a thriller in store for Sigma Force, a plot that combines a, a, a historical global conspiracy with elements of John Grisham's The Firm? I'm, I'm sure that's totally possible. I mean, <laughs> I just said money is the root of all evil, and I can see that could be easily. Now, and now you got my wheels turning. That, you know. <laughs> Perfect. Like, you know, there's, there are a few things I personally love more than a good racketeering case, a good felony for profit investigation. So um, <laughs> I'd, I'd be happy to buy and read that one. Perfect. Um, now it, it turns out, um, getting close to the, the, the end here, but I really wanted to bring this up. So philanthropy is, is very important to both of us. And uh, you're particularly active with supporting America's veteran community. Can you talk about how that got started and, and how you're working with military veterans today? Um, sure. And, and thanks for bringing that up. I, that's a topic I do like. I always try to, to, to raise if I can is, uh, you know, back in winter of 2010, I had joined a, a group of writers that the USO took to, uh, to uh, Kuwait and Iraq during the, during the war and uh, got to meet, you know, the men and women in the field. I got a great idea for, a uh, whole series from going out there because I'm, I'm being a veterinarian. I saw men and women working with their their military war dogs out in the field, and I said, oh look, they have got dogs. And so I sort of you know broke out a conversation between the handlers and the, and you know what it meant to have, to have their dogs, and that that became uh, my Tucker and Wayne Tucker Wayne and Kane series. But anyway, um, so when I came back, I had you know haphazardly done you know volunteer work or, or charity work for for veterans, but it was never in any co coherent manner. But I was approached by USA Cares and said, hey, you know, would you be willing to be a spokesperson for us? And I said, well, I, I don't even know who you are. And they, <laughs> yes. they said, well, that's, that's a problem that we hope yes. you're going to solve for us. So it's, a, it's a small sort of grassroots out, outfit out of, out of Kentucky, the now nationwide. What they do is they raise emergency funds for vets in need. Wow. It is just, you know, a veteran needs help turning on a light because they can't pay their electric bill. They need 
travel expenses to move or if they need to buy a suit for a job, doesn't matter what it is, big or small, they will just give the money. It's not, it's not a loan. You don't have to pay it back. It's, uh, it's, and for every dollar that USA Cares raises, 97 cents goes into the pocket of a veteran. That's incredible. And so they achieve that ratio because they don't do any advertising. Uh, they, they, they look for spokespeople like Dennis Miller on the radio. They approached me and said, hey, you know, you've got a following. Would you mind talking, us about, talking about, uh, you know, us on, on tour, you know, to raise some awareness amongst people that might want to donate money or veterans that might help, need help. And so sure, you know, I'll be happy to do that. But, you know, why just me? I know other authors. And so I banded together a bunch of us uh, other authors and formed Authors United, which basically was just a group of us in support of U.S. U.S. US cares and that's now they're going like gangbusters and now i join a new outfit called us for warriors against grassroots out of san diego we're just beginning to spread nationwide uh what i i'm specifically a part of the veterans publishing group where we uh veterans that want to tell their story we mentor them in regards to to getting their story told whether it's just for you know their family if they want to have a, like a diary or record of, of what happened or if they want to get published, we sort of take them and mentor them through the steps to get published, whether wow. it's traditional publish or self-publishing. One of our great success stories this past uh, six months, and unfortunately it wasn't one of my mentorees, it was another, another author who mentored this person, uh, just sold his book for six figures and just got a movie deal. So wow. that's uh, incredible. But we're hoping to have even more success because we just literally just started this process about two years ago. So hopefully we'll see that take off. Now, out of uh, out of respect for your time, I'm going to cross off almost everything else off my questions list here. But I, I do have one that I, I've started ending a lot of these podcasts with that I, I hope you'll bear with me here. Sure. Um, you can put any fictional investigator, operative, or team on this hypothetical case. God forbid it should ever come to pass. But if you found yourself murdered tomorrow as part of a diabolical conspiracy, who would you want working the case and why? Who would work working the case? I would want Sherlock Holmes. I, I still, you know, I, I think in some regards, my main character, uh, Gray Pierce, you know, what his, mm-hmm. his, his secret power is basically, you know, he's able to think outside the box. He sees things that other people don't see. He's very intuitive. Uh, so in some regards, you know, Commander Grayson Pierce is, is my military version of Sherlock Holmes. So but rather than having Grayson Pierce solve my case, let's go back <laughs> to the, who was, who was the, the original? It's original, exactly. Well, there you have it, folks. Sherlock Holmes gets the go-ahead to investigate James Rollins' murder. And thanks again to international best-selling author James Rollins for making time to join me today. You've been listening to Writers on the Beat, where crime writers meet crime fighters. I'm your host, Gavin Reese. Until next time, take care of yourselves and each other. Be safe out there.